Good. I'd like to request your kind attention. This is my last formal evening Dhamma talk, so just to flag this and it appropriate in such occasions is uh, tempering expectations of yogis when they go back. not trying to convert your whole family. Um, don't expect to stay in the Arupa jhanas throughout your everyday life. Um, be prepared that some of the insights may feel big, but still need a little bit of corroboration in everyday contexts. Uh, exhortations that you keep meditating that it is perfectly all right to keep meditating even though you may not have six weeks at a stretch for it, you know, that this is a useful practice. How to integrate um, Buddhist practice, contemplative life, ethics, samatha, vipassana into your everyday life, where to meet groups, encouragement to find kalyanamitas, be a kalyanamita, move where there are kalyanamitas if there aren't any where you are, Things like that. So I'm not going to do any of this. <clears throat> Let me just be blunt. If, uh, if your everyday life, uh, I'm always asked to teach how Buddhism integrates into everyday life. You know? uh, my take on this is it shouldn't integrate. The truth is if your everyday life hasn't made you awake right now, until now, then it's probably not a skillful idea to try to uh, subordinate Buddhist practice to your everyday life as the basic organization of reality. Um, it should be the other way around, in my understanding. It should be um, that that which takes you, by your own account, closer to awakening, closer to freedom, closer to understanding, closer to wholeness, closer to happiness, closer to profound transformative insights, that that should be the overarching principle rather than the sacrosanct and untouchable everyday life. So, so I would like to speak about a topic that is, I believe, not famous enough as so many of my pet, pet topics. You will know this intro uh, by now. As you know, Buddhism rich as it is and hallowed that its tradition is, um, is subject to precisely that, traditions. Now there's different way how you can understand a tradition. On one way, in one way, a tradition is the kind of the collective institutionalized orthodoxies that have gradually emerged over two and a half millennia. And tradition is then that which upholds, canonizes and uh, preaches such orthodoxy. Also, such orthodoxy and tradition is what says what is not good Buddhism. Yeah. There's another notion of tradition, uh, a notion I prefer a lot more. And this is the notion that tradition is soil. It doesn't actually give you the finished product. It gives you a rich and fertile ground out of which can grow your own understanding, out of which 
you can nourish your own practice, out of which your path begins to emerge. In that soil is, that soil is saturated with the wisdom, the practice, and the transmissions of all the institutions, all the realized beings, all the practice um, tools that have been found by aspiring practitioners through the ages, male and female, robed and not robed, uh, with, um, in the Himalayas and on Japanese islands in Southeast Asia and in Korea, in Indonesia and in um, Central Asia, in places where we have and have had living oral traditions. We all are at the receiving end of such living oral traditions. It is one of the privileges of our time that these living oral traditions have landed in the West, have, been, have started to be translated into English and a few other languages, and are accessible in ways they have never been before. Most Buddhist teachers will not have access to as many teachings as you and I have these days. You have to understand this. Yeah. This is an absolute amazing situation. Unfortunately, such traditions and transmission lineages also have a, a kind of a normative quality. So, since these traditions have grown, and since Buddhist teachings are kind of quite wide in scope, um, traditions have also been the institutions that basically give you the top 10 of Buddhism. So like Akinjana gives you his personal uh, top 10 or 12 of Satipatthana books, which is a, a highly biased and uh, lacking any authority and uh, completely personal and uh, possibly eccentric and uh, far, you know, list of things he personally thinks useful. So traditions have always done that. They have always said, okay, this is the whole of it, but it is unlikely that you have time to kind of rummage through the whole of it. Here we give you an anthology. Here we give you the Buddhist dictionary. Here we give you an outline of the Eightfold Path. Here we give you the top 25 suttas. And then these are anthologized and quoted again and quoted again and quoted again and quoted again and the quarry of Buddhism out there in some way gets forgotten because of a few anthologies, because of a few salient, um, you know, Theravada Buddhism for dummies or kind of, yeah. Because you think this is where you basically, you've got it in a bag. Yeah? Which is understandable. That's what I do and I did and... I keep uh, recommending that people do. At the same time, I also warn that there is much more out there than you will find anthologized. So one of the problems with this is that the Buddhist teaching is situational. It is not a clean architecture of uh, you know, top topics and then kind of gradually ramified and finally going down to the real broadly outlaid base. Yeah? Buddhist teachings, as we know them from the suttas, are basically the narrative reports of an encounter. So-and-so goes there, talks to him, and then they go to the Buddha and ask him that. And the Buddha says this. 
turn the page. Completely different story. Other time, other place, other protagonists. If you want to know what happened to your protagonist, you may, be you may have to be prepared to leaf through quite a few books before you can get it. a sequel to that little encounter. So it is not easy to read Buddhist texts because they don't give you a system, because they don't have a proper index, because they don't have a, a proper contents page, because it doesn't exactly define things whenever it mentions them neatly in the footnotes. Although commentators have tried to patch that, although good anthologies give you sources, uh, establish thematic approaches to Buddhist teaching, still there is an awful lot of stuff out there which somehow never quite makes it into the chart list. So one of the things that has never made it into the chart list is a concept <coughs> we more or less owe a Thai monk to have dug it out again in uh, about 40 years ago. His name was Tanachan Puttathasa, meaning literally the slave of the Buddha. This is his preferred name. He... Um, in Thailand, as I told you, you, you get buried, uh, you, you get burned when you, when you die. Only very few people <coughs> get buried. He insisted that when he died, he wanted to be cast mafia-style into a concrete pedestal. And on that pedestal was supposed to be a Buddha statue. He wanted to be cast into that <coughs> concrete pedestal inside, invisible, holding up the Buddha. That was his vision of how he wanted to to basically be uh, his body to be treated. I think they convinced him at the very end not to do that, and I believe he has been burned. But I remember this is definitely was his wish, yeah? so that he quite literally would uphold the Buddha as an invisible support in the shape of concrete. So this man has single-handedly made Buddhism something interesting for the educated Thai middle classes in the latter part of the last century. Um, and he was an avid practitioner, he was an avid reader of the Tipitaka, and quite an unconventional mind. He was given many honors towards the end of his life, uh, but he never left his place. So he stayed in southern Thailand, which is traditionally not the famous corner for the forest tradition, which usually is up northeast in the north. And he stayed down there in Suan Mok. Some of you may have been to his, uh, to his monastery. He, um, he was quite famous for having uh, unconventional approaches to Buddhism. And he fished out some teachings which he thought were particularly fascinating. The last few years of his life, he was particularly fascinated with the concept I'd like to say something about tonight. The concept has the unwieldy name of Atamayata, which, uh, if you take it apart, literally means uh, the state of not being made of that. Yeah? Tam, this, Maya, made. Uh, a is the negation, so not being made, and the ta at the end is basically a state of being. Yeah. As in English, you might say the ness, as in uh, coldness or or emptiness or suchness. Yeah. The ness in there is the ta bit, as in sunyata or as in tatata. So. So we have a teaching, and this teaching occurs a couple of places in the suttas. Let me read you one little place, which is a, a wonderful mantra. If you're looking for a Theravada mantra, a Pali mantra, here it is. 
without identification. Monks, when a monk considers six benefits, it is enough for him to establish the unlimited perception of non-self in all phenomena. Unlimited perception of non-self. Yeah, you need to gulp for a moment. This is big stuff. What six? Quote, I will be without identification in the entire world. The term here is atamayata. The second, eye-making will cease for me. Third, mind-making will cease for me. This is the ahankara and mamankara of last night. Yeah? The acts of selfing, as the Pali refers them, eye-making and mind-making. The fourth, I will come to possess knowledge not shared by common people. An affirmation to uh, persevere till we have uncommon knowledge. Yeah? Knowledge that is not just acquired by learning. Knowledge that comes through realization and the depth of meditation. The fifth, I will have clearly seen causation. The sixth, I will have clearly seen causally arisen phenomena. So, these are kind of affirmations, almost mantra-like, for a practitioner who, having considered six benefits, um, that will lead him to the establishment of an unlimited perception of anatata in all phenomena. I will be without identification in the entire world. Eye-makings will cease for me, mind-makings will cease for me. I will come to possess knowledge not shared by common people. I will have clearly seen uh, causation, dependent arising. I will have clearly seen dependently arisen phenomena. Monks, a practitioner considering these six benefit will be establishing the unlimited perception of non-self in all phenomena. So this is one occurrence of our term, atamayata. Let me say something to make more sense of this, because why would a strange, unwieldy concept be interesting for us when we practice? In a way, we can say that the notion of <coughs> atamayata is a quality <coughs> that is a quality of awareness that is basically either prior to or free from any notion of subject-object split, any notion of duality. It is, in many ways, the highest type of relationship you can engage in towards conditioned phenomena. It's not Nibbana, but this is your relationship to the world, to the world of the body, to the world of the mind. And, you know, ultimately this world is more a mind world than a body world. Although I have been harping on about embodiment and being in the body and there, there being no experience of mind without embodiment. Although I, I keep saying this, there is also something else true. Namely, what do I know of this body? What I know of this body is I can feel it, I can touch it, I can experience from the inside and outside, I can see it, uh, sometimes I can smell it, uh, I can, if I nibble a bit on it, I can taste it, but 
it is not actually very accurate to say that this mind is in the body, as some people are trying to tell us. Yeah? Mind is a sort of epiphenomena of brain. brain. Uh, if we're looking at Buddhist teaching, it's the other way around. Yeah? The body is in the mind. Because, frankly, where does seeing occur? Yeah? It doesn't occur in the eye. Yeah? The act of seeing occurs in your mind. The eye just receives the reflexes, but your um, your visual center is not here. <laughs> it's it's at the other it's in the in the other corner of your head. Where does touch occur? It occurs in the mind. Where does hearing occur? It occurs in the mind. Smell occurs in the mind, deeply embedded in your limbic system, is your olfactory center. All our sense functioning hinges on mind. So, in a way, it is much more accurate to say that the body is in the mind rather than the mind is in the body. Now, that wasn't always the case. That is a novelty in Buddhist teaching. Vedic teaching... Uh, which the Buddha takes up when he speaks of Atamayata. He takes up a concept that occurs in the Vedic teaching and that is called uh, Tamayata, the whole thing without the negation at the front. And that concept is basically old and it goes, it, it has uh, an understanding of um, that the mind becomes identified completely with the thing that it attends to in undivided ways. And the analogy is that of a hand grasping something. So the hand that grasps this clock will start to take the shape of this clock. The mind that abides in the contemplation of Brahman will become one with Brahman. That's an idea that is uh, present in Vedic teaching and it serves as a basis that we become the things we give our attention to. You know? We internalize these things and we basically become one with them. So that is an understanding. The visual theory is something similar. Uh, it is the eye sends out a kind of ray and then the ray comes back and begins to shape what it sees inside. In other words, um, if you're a psychologist, then this is highly suspect. This sounds like psychosis. If you think psychic equivalence, you know, if you think something, it's real, then this is generally not a compliment to your mental health. If you think you can make things just by thinking them, this is a fairly standard telltale sign of of major, major mental malfunctioning. If you seriously believe just because it's a thought in your head, it is actually a manifest reality, not just for you as your private little hallucination or perception, but actually as an objective, verifiable, out there for everyone reality, then uh, this is generally the moment when people start giving you um, antipsychotica. So the Buddha has a very different take on how the world comes to be in the mind. It does not come to be that we give our attention to something and then basically grasp this something and that something becomes identical with what the mind is. The Buddha is quite clear that the world is a construed world. We construct a world. 
I've tried explaining last week the construction that starts with the fact that our attention latches onto nimitas, onto particular signs, themes, hallmarks, and that grasping at the individual's themes with attention triggers a perceptual process which begins to solidify or technically to reify an essentially dynamic world. What is moving in my senses, I cannot really think of as moving. I keep trying to frame it in terms of static concepts or percepts to start with. I whip them up into concepts a step later. So let's start with the neat English distinction between percepts and concepts. So the output, the input in your senses, the sense data packaged, serialized, being correlated with your memory, end up being identified as something you believe to know. Sometimes with a name, sometimes with an image, sometimes just with a, a recognition. Yeah? So my hand knows something about his clock. It has touched it a couple of times and somehow my hand knows something about his clock. So the sanya in my head, when I reach in the dark for this clock, the sanya is that my, ma- my hand knows the shape of this clock and knows its function and knows its, uh, its, its designation. Yeah. So what started off with our attention latching on to particularly outstanding characteristics of the dynamic sense world, characteristics I generally have chosen, yeah. If I am afraid, then one of the characteristics is I am in the lookout of things that make me afraid. If I uh, look for stimulation, then I am on the lookout for the things that I know is nice and I would like to have. If I am on the lookout for a friend who has disappeared or who has left me or who is missing or whom I miss badly, it's strikes me that I walk through the station and keep having the feeling, oh, this, this is him. I, I keep believing to recognize him. My sanya tries to, to land on other people. Yeah. My cherished friend, whom I miss, and who was, whose sanya I keep holding in my mind, that sanya tries to land on unsuspecting strangers. Yeah? I, I expect you have experienced this. So, on the second level of reification, it is the perception that solidifies my world. And on the third level, as soon as language kicks in and the concept world, then things really become reified. Words really become static. A name is very static. What can happen to Peter? Uh, Many things can happen to Peter. I still hold the name of him. I had a friend when I was in school, um, a girl, we were never lovers, but uh, we were close, we uh, did our homework together and later on we uh, shared our first tragic love stories with each other when things went wrong and um, I've always felt greatly fond of her, a kinship, but for many complicated reasons, we've lost sight of each other for many, many years. And uh, uh, part of the problem was I become a Buddhist monk and left uh, that kind of corner of the world and lived in all other places. And 
When I came back as a Buddhist monk in my early 40s, I had my first reunion, class reunion, and I, I looked forward to meeting her. I expected her to be happily married and have three kids and be, uh, be in a very good place. And I found out that she was dead. She had been dead for many years. She had the brain tumor and died uh, in her late 20s. And I hadn't seen her for, you know, for 25 years. And when, she, when I heard she was dead, she was no, no more absent than when I heard she, when I thought she was alive. You know, in both cases, I never actually haven't had any contact with her for 25 years. And yet I was grieving. I was grieving for somebody who wasn't actually in my life, other than a memory, other than as a memory. She was still a girl in my memory. And yet, you know, she was no longer there. She hadn't been there for a long time. Technically, I hadn't lost anything. Practically, it felt a great loss. You know? It felt sad. Even though that human being only lived in my mind. It was a, a memory that I cherished and that I vitalized and thought about and I fantasized around her and saying, yeah, would she have boys or girls? I wonder where she, you know, where she will have landed. And I'm sure she's a great mom. <laughs> sort of... And all this suddenly was, was so unreal. Yeah. She was not there. She hadn't been there for a long time without me knowing. And I left that evening, which was in many ways full of delights. I left that evening with a, more than a whiff of grief. Yeah. Grieving basically for a memory of mine. Grieving for a figment of fantasy. You know, in terms of Buddhist practice, this was so unreal. I prolonged the memory of a girl into a, a future thinking that this future somehow was realistic and that at some point I would be part of that future again as an old schoolmate. And then suddenly I find out not, none of this is real. This hasn't happened. No. <coughs> she's been gone. By the time I found out about it, she'd been gone for many, many years. And yet my, my grief was genuine. No. I was sad. I cried. Tears were running down my cheeks. I, it stayed with me for days. Although it was a fantasy of mine. She was a reified figment, a memory that I had maintained and prolonged and kept up and looked forward to update with, you know, somebody, maybe a few more pounds on her hips and a couple of gray hair and... Uh, first wrinkles, but I was looking forward to kind of update my sanya of her, and there was nothing to update anymore. So we reify, and we do that not just with dead people, we do that with living people. I said it is a sign of love that we update our perception more frequently, that we release people from the frames we have packed them into. That's what you do. Every tradition knows that. Jewish tradition knows that. Buddhist tradition knows that. Christian tradition knows that when it speaks of forgiveness. You know, we need to forgive. We need to release people from our notions we hold of them. We need to free people from tying them into our concepts that we have 
arrived at. Even if those concepts have had some accuracy, they have become unfair now. They have become inaccurate. And it is necessary that we consciously release these people and allow them to become somebody new, to become somebody fresh, to meet them again. So the teaching of Atamayata is at the verge of meeting the conditioned world. In one way, it is the non-reactiveness and it is the non-attachment and the non-identification with the world if this world is inward. The world that we perceive and take into our system is a world that Atamayata does not attach to. It does not identify with. It does not um, it does not hold on to. It establishes its fluidity again. It does not make it mine. It does not appropriate it. That's an important one. So, an awakened perspective or a perspective that we experience the world from when we experience the world from a, an awareness of atamayata, that which is not made of this, not insisting on the thatness or on the thisness, not insisting on the nimitta, not insisting on the image, on the frame, on the concept, on the person. It is restored to its fluidity again. It is restored to just as is. It has nothing added. So if we turn this quality of awareness outward, then we don't have non-identification and non-attachment, then we have something else. We have something which uh, you could call it unconcoctability. It is not reified. It is not made into something. The thinginess has come out of it. We relate to a world of our senses, a world of objects, a world of uh, flavor, touch, of uh, thought, a world of taste and smell and uh, sights. We relate to that world not in terms of their thinginess anymore. We have released the nimitta. What the meditation instruction says, he or she is not grasping at the primary and secondary characteristics anymore. He does not grasp at the signs and the identifying features. He is willing to be with this without grasping at these things. He doesn't reach and try to pin down and name and hold and categorize and structure and order and appropriate. It's a mind that does not do that. A mind that does not grasp things to become one with them. A mind that does not construe a world anymore. One way of relating to this is a very simple text. It's a famous little text. This one, um, I'm happy to hang up afterwards. It's a text. It was addressed to a man called Malunkya Putta, Malunkya's son. And <clears throat> the Buddha gives a very terse instruction there and says, When Malunkya Putta regarding what is seen, heard, sensed, and cognized by you, in the seen there will be only the seen. In the heard there will be only the heard. In the sensed there will be only the sensed. In the cognized there will be only the cognized. Then, Malunkaputa, you are not 
you are not by that. When Malonkya Puta, you are not by that, then you will not be therein. When Malonkya Puta, you are not therein, then you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. You will be neither here nor beyond nor between the two. Completely non-localizable. An awareness that does inwardly no longer attach and hold on to, outwardly no longer construe and reify. Yeah. And that place is a place that is possible. It's a place that we, we can embody. It's a place that mindfulness practice can cultivate. That place is rated higher than Upeka, that place is rated higher in two of the suttas. Again, these are not famous passages, but uh, in the Majjhima suttas, two of them, in one occasion, Atamayata is rated higher as the, uh, the Arupa Jhanas, which is nothing to be sniffed at, you know, <laughs> just to be clear. And um, Atamayata is rated higher as the seventh of the Bhajangas, as Upeka. It's a passage which speaks of a unified upeka and diversified upeka and the one that releases uh, the, the sequence is diversified upeka, unified upeka and then the highest, that which releases from the attachment to upeka, to equanimity is a quality called atamayata, non-reification, non-identification uh, non-concoctability non yeah? the not making anything out of that anymore Ajahn Buddhadasa was quite uh, fond of this and he said towards the end of his life he, he said there's two ways you can basically do this either this is the fruition of a sequence of knowledges which he jokingly referred to the Thai word for I is the word Da yeah? Da Hmm? So, so da, two eyes, and the word I is also a synonym for insight that arises in the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta. You have a phrase, you have a, a famous passage, which when the Buddha refers to the insight that has arisen out of his contemplation of the three aspects of the four tasks, uh, he says, "And then, when my contemplation was contempl complete." The I arose in me. Udapadi chakku. Chakkum udapadi. Jnana udapadi. Aloka udapadi. Vija udapadi. Those are words. Chakku, jnana, vija, aloka. Those are all terms that are used synonymously for the understanding that has arisen. So Ajahn Buddhadasa, uh, making a little spoof of this first word, standing for understanding, which in Pali language is chakung. Remember, when somebody realizes stream entry, he, he, the eye of the Dharma opens in him. So he sees or she sees the eye of the Dharma opens, and he or she sees the path for the first time, independent of others. So Ajahn Buddhadat, knowing about this reference, the synonymous nature of uh, the term I in Pali with the term understanding has devised a sequence of nine differing 
DAS. And now these DAS are, in Thai they sound like eyes, but uh, they're actually referring to the Pali terms. And these Pali terms are, the first one is anicchata, impermanence. Yeah. The second one is dukkata, unsatisfactoriness. The third one is anattata, uh, not self. The fourth one is dhammatitata, the um, naturalness. This is a term that occurs uh, only a few times and it speaks of a basic inherent um, pattern of how things work. So there are natural laws. Some of these laws have to do with gravity, some of them do have to do with heredity, some of them do have with psychology, some of them do have with... Um, uh, there's a law, Bichaniyama, which has to do with the law of how things... Um, yeah, I think heredity is probably the best term. Uh, how something develops. Yeah. Um, so, uh, naturalness, the, 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 the law... law the laws that govern uh, an experience of nature, the nature of mind, chitta-niyama, or the, the nature of uh, how something grows, bija-niyama, or you know, the law of karma, the law of kamma-vipaka, of action and consequence, kamma-niyama. So this is what he means by uh, this uh, dhamma-titata. The next one is dhamma-niyamata, which is uh, the lawfulness, that the principles that govern dimensions of our experience occur not erratically. This is not just a chance process, but actually there is an underpinning structure that is discernible. And if we align ourselves and reconcile ourselves with this uh, lawfulness, then we have a much better chance to understand and live happy. The next one is a famous one. It's, it's called Ida Pachayata. This is a dimension of dependent arising that is specific. Yeah? It's called specific conditionality. Understanding the principle of specific conditionality is something that uh, lets us understand more clearly how things take place. Yeah? Well, dependent arising is the big principle governing basically the arising of suffering. Idapachayata uh, offers us an insight into how this particular suffering came about, you know, which is very interesting if you're particularly concerned about something that hurts or that is unsatisfactory in your life, then you're more interested in the specificity of a teaching rather than in say, yes, things go wrong or everything crumbles or, you know, or we, all, we all grow old and, you know, and uh, poultry or so. Um, it's how you specifically uh, connect causes and consequences. That is uh, in the teaching of Ida Pachayata to be found. And then uh, the next one, <coughs> Sunyata, emptiness. Important here is generally emptiness, both in early and later Buddhism, it's important to find out what something is empty of. Yeah. So sometimes teaching of emptiness can go wrong if we're not actually clear what is empty of what? In early Buddhism, uh, the major key feature of emptiness is the absence of a persistent self-entity in phenomena, both 
internal or external. So the understanding emptiness means primarily understanding absence. It doesn't mean it's hollow. It doesn't mean it, it's, it's got no value. It doesn't mean um, it doesn't hurt when you, when you get hit with it on your head. Yeah? That's not the world. That's not the meaning of emptiness. The meaning is that it has no inherent solidity. It is no core. It depends on attributes. It depends on conditions. It can be altered. It is not immutable. And the second to last one of his nine eyes, of his nine knowledges, is the knowledge of tatata, of suchness. This is also a big concept. This is when you do not create things anymore, you are being with the naked suchness of, an, of a quality of experience, inside or outside. Being able to experience the true suchness of something. No distortions. No additions, no wants, no fears. The complete absence of any distorting uh, parameters in your, in your system. Meeting the suchness of a moment is always a powerful stage in your practice. Being truly with the suchness of a situation. Maybe you have recall in your life that you... There are moments when you have understood things in an immediate way, a way that does no longer, uh, is no longer inferential. It's no longer uh, illustrated. It's no longer... Um, you don't have to infer anything. You don't have to conclude anything. It's absolutely, immediately, starkly, nakedly obvious. And there's a strange peacefulness when that happens. There's a strange, powerful quiet that kind of comes up when this, when this takes place, when you have truly understood something to be the way it is. That ta-ta-ta, without wishes, without craving, without reminiscing, meeting that suchness is profoundly transformative. And the last one, predictably, in Achan Buddha Dasa's uh, nomenclature of nine <laughs> stages is Atamayata, the capacity of an awareness, a state of mind that does not lean into construction and reification anymore and that doesn't lean into attachment and identification anymore. It's a powerful teaching. He wouldn't be the man he is famous for if he didn't have another spin on it, which sounds a little less lofty. And he suggested to use Atamayata to be used as a mantra, you know, as a kind of as a, as a spell, you know, as the sort of the moment when you go from prayer to, in, to incessant prayer. You know? So he said, you can use this Atamayata <clears throat> uh, as something as a statement, something along the lines, I'm not going to mess with you anymore. Atamayata means I'm not going to mess with you anymore. Addiction, anger. You just say, I'm not going to mess with you anymore. As an affirmative, powerful, fire statement. Yeah, I am determined that I am not going to dabble with you. I'm going to be absolutely clear and powerful with you. I'm not going to go into this anymore with you. You don't tell that to other people. You tell that to yourself. Yeah, just 
slightly different. Yeah. Crucial, crucial little significance here. So it's, it's how you address a recurrent unhealthy pattern of which you know very well where it takes you, of which you already have paid the price enough times so that you don't, you have no doubt that this is basically not going to take a good end. And you muster energy, you affirm your better knowledge of yourself and you just say, Atamayata, I'm not going to mess with you anymore. Let me end. Yeah. Thank you for your attention. What I plan, just briefly for tomorrow, uh, I'll be sitting with you and doing some uh, reflections. Then I hope we will practice during the day. I'll be seeing people in the morning, and um, I won't. I have a meeting with some of the staff folks, so I won't be around for two o'clock. And in the evening, I intend, for those of you who wish, to do some chanting and maybe a, a round of sharing and just sitting together in here in informal ways. If you uh, feel interested in be part of this, just join. If you feel you want to continue re retreat or you want to leave it as, as is, uh, then uh, it is up to you whether you're part of this. These are my plans. Let us uh, sit for 20 minutes and uh, finish with some chanting.